This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Chronicles Magazine Podcast. I'm very delighted to have with me today, Nathan Pinkowski. Nathan, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right, Nathan. So you're a fellow at the Edmund Burke Foundation, and today we're going to focus on a essay that you wrote for First Things. Um, it's it's about a controversial book, and we're going to get into why it's controversial, but perhaps why it should not be so controversial. Um, the book, of course, is Camp of the Saints, and you have this long, it's a very long essay, but it's worth reading. And I want to kind of go through it. I think it'll take the entirety of our time here today just to go through kind of from top to bottom. Um, but before we get started in that, um, let me let me just start. Let's just do like a lightning round to set up. What, when did you first read this book? So um, I, I knew of the author uh, some time ago. I'd been exposed to some of his works, knew when he died, uh, knew some friends of his. Um and uh but but this was one book that i actually hadn't read until a couple of years ago partly because it, it's so controversial in the english speaking world and i thought well let's just read it and see what it is and um i was expecting something very different uh and when i actually read it i thought uh well this novel may have uh may have literary problems we can get to this later but i think in the literary element it's a bit like brave new world you know where you have underdeveloped characters um, there, there are literary aspects of the novel that could be subject to critique, but uh, it should be read and it should be engaged with seriously and criticized, of course, as any good, you know, good piece of writing should be. But um, it's it's really quite a profound work, I think, that um, that that allows us to understand some of the internal movements that have taken place in late modernity and Western civilization. And that's the aspect that fascinated me and okay. I thought was deserving of more serious engagement. So you did you write this essay? Did they ask you to write this essay, or is this something that you pitched to them? So um, you know, uh, I know the editor of the magazine, Rusty Reno, very well. Uh, he had read this uh, novel too, and we had spoken about it. Uh, similar kind of of uh, discussion where we thought there were aspects of the novel that should be presented as any good piece of literary criticism, uh, and uh, we came to common agreement that I should write it. And um, and uh, he encouraged me to do so. So that's that was the genesis of the project. Mm -hmm. So the title of the essay is Spiritual Death of the West. And you explain the thesis of the book um, sort of in a transcendent way beyond just the example that he gives, uh, which is, of course, immigration is, is sort of the foil that he's using to explain deeper infections that the West that characterize you know, the modern West and modern Western nations. Um, obviously, it characterizes the American intelligentsia, but it also uh, you know, it, it describes so well what is happening in England and France and Germany and in in, in in everywhere basically that um, have been Americanized, you know, so to speak, um, and we'll and we'll get into that as well. But I want you to talk about what why what you're trying to do here and draw the analogy and not have people focus so much on the intricacies of like immigration and the you know the specificities of the people coming into the West, but. Um, what do you mean by the spiritual death of the West, and why do you focus on the self-perception of Western nations as as one of the animating themes of this book? Well, because I think that's what the novel is really about, and that's why it's a fascinating piece of literature. 
it's it's a piece of fiction and I spy uh, acknowledge that and the closest he comes there's one point I mentioned the closest he comes to mentioning a real uh, a real law in the novel he changes the date to show that he's trying to keep it in the realm of fiction um, but I think that's the, the the theme of the novel. It's really about a mirror held up to Westerners, to Europeans, and pointing out their own defects, the, you know, their, the defects in the ways that they've been thinking um, about themselves, uh, about their role in the world, uh, and that those those uh, defects and vices are are ethical, spiritual, theological, and those the latter two aspects, the spiritual and theological aspect, I think, are a key. Uh, theme of the novel, and it's worth bearing in mind too. Uh, again, just to to um, to counter the superficial readings of the novel that just want to look at this for some polemical purpose, whether it be uh, for a tirade against white supremacy or a tirade for white supremacy. You know, both those kinds of readings should be rejected. Uh, I think they're two sides of the same coin because what they do is they ignore the they ignore the aspect that what is really on trial in the novel is the is modern western man mm -hmm. uh, modern western humanity and how uh how he's come to think of himself mm -hmm. and uh and Raspai, on another note too just begin to host the bear in mind you could look at this novel and you could see, and i think nowadays because of our own uh, because of the the rapid transformations that our own society have undergone because of immigration you could read this novel and say look he predicted one day in the life of chancellor merkel or or something like that um, but Raspai repudiated that reading of the novel. He said, I don't want to be read for uh, for someone who is a prophet in the sense of predicting exactly what would happen later on. Uh, he thought of himself as a prophet in the sense of someone who was diagnosing a kind of malaise in civilization. Because in the early 1970s, the scale of mass migration that, say, happened in 2015 um, was not something that people even imagined. They couldn't even dream of it. The, mm -hmm. So it's not a it's not a it's not a policy prescription. It's not a prediction of uh, of what he thinks um, might happen with certain policies. It's about the malaise of of the West. Again, this, this mirror held up to to the West to our own civilization and asking what are the trends in there, and if we followed them to their logical conclusion, what would that mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about the fact that Respel had. Um, sympathies with Catholic traditionalism. So to what extent did his Catholicism influence his diagnosis of, of Western difficulties? I think it's a big part of it. And uh, he's he's a very spiritual writer who I think borrows a lot from the style that an earlier French writer, um, French writer, uh, Georges Bernanos, who people might perhaps know uh, for his most famous novel, Diary of a Country Priest, which was later made into a film, both the novel and the film, uh, are excellent. And uh, there's a spiritual component to that, too. Um, it, and Bernanos is someone who has a sense that the West is undergoing this process of de-incarnation, mm -hmm. that, that Christ is is leaving uh, the the civilization that once uh, sustained his, his, uh, his, in which he could subsist and provide sacraments and grace to people, that there's a, a moment of uh, exodus that is happening because Westerners have, uh, to put it in Solzhenitsyn's language, turned their back on God, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and Raspai is someone who I think takes up that theme and puts it in a little more of a modernist vein in terms of some of the literary uh, aspects and style. He's more interested in, in, uh, in, in descriptions of the grotesque. Mm -hmm. um, Bernanos has some of this too, you know, portraying murders and reprehensible characters. Raspai has some of that uh, as well. But 
I, I think Raspai has to be understood as a, as a serious spiritual writer, a serious uh, Catholic writer who's interested in the movement of grace within uh, human communities. Mm -hmm. You know, he, uh, obviously he was French and the setting for his book was, um, you know, the situation in France um, with an immigration. And, 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 and again, and I'll, I've said this before and we'll probably talk about it again, but immigration for him in this book as a theme is sort of a foil. It's an opportunity to talk about something more transcendent or something um, that's that's deeper. But let's let's talk about the opening scene, because, um, you know, I mean, that kind of it, it's really captivating. I mean, once once you start the book, you're going you're going to finish it. Um, so the opening scene, uh, and you can talk about it too, is an old professor just watching, um, you know, the the armada, right, that comes into France and, and it loads um, just legion of, of third world, um, you know, immigrants, basically. Um, and so just talk about that scene and why, why, why is he using immigration as a foil to describe what's happening? Well, I think the, that what is going on there is is um, he's using it, I think, to show that the he's using it to show a number of, of features. But I think the most important one here is is about a civilizational loss of self-confidence and uh, the, the predominance of guilt and a desire for one's own annihilation, mm -hmm. annihilation of of of, uh, of high culture. Uh, and the reduction of civilization to a kind of uh, uh, perpetual mediocrity that just consists throughout time. And the dynamics of this opening scene are very interesting. And it also shows that the novel isn't isn't uh, isn't a tirade against uh, against immigration, um, because what's going on is this old professor is accosted by a young uh, vagrant, or another European vagrant, a white vagrant. Uh, who kind of mouths a version of what I say in the article is a version that uh, of, of the kinds of proclamations that that Jean-Paul Sartre and earlier the gen well yeah writing a decade earlier but a very common way that the intelligentsia thought about the country as one that merited uh, punishment uh, the invitation for colonization uh, is there in Sartre that the French deserve to be colonized they deserve to be destroyed. They deserve to be conquered, right? This this is Sartre's language. This is Sartre's call for violence. This is Sartre's call for uh, for um, for civilizational destruction. But what do we see here? It's interesting. We see that that at this stage in the novel, the ideas that were just touted about in you know in certain circles in the in the nice cafes in in Saint Germain de Pre, right in Paris, where all the intellectuals hang out. Now they've come down to the common man. They've come down to the level of this miscreant. And he's mm -hmm. the one speaking that. So that shows you that this civilization, this country, this this nation is already in extremely rough shape. Mm -hmm. I think that's the undertones that we're supposed to get from mm -hmm. from this scene. And there's a bit of the class struggle element that's certainly part of it too. And we and the novel, I think, is attentive to those to those themes. But I think we should think of this opening scene as one where the the armada is there in the backdrop, but we have this conflict that takes place internal to a country and nation, and it shows us that there's no community here anymore. There's no uh, sense of common solidarity. There's, in fact, a, a desire to destroy, and that's mm -hmm. what's dominant. So, in other words, you know, he's 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 portraying the situation where, um, you know, he he uses the French, you know, scene, but really it's just anal you know, analogous to to all Western countries where there's not this this random like foreign invasion of people. Um, the the people 
residing in the West actually have sort of a, a suicidal impulse. They don't care anymore about defending their point. And that's the point. So it's not like, you know, it's not like the walls are up and the, the gates are closed. It's actually they just don't are not willing to distinguish their own culture and their own heritage from uh, any other any other culture and any other any other people groups. They're just not willing to rep, you know, to recognize that something that what they have inherited is something worth preserving. And that's kind of that's kind of your point here. That's why you bring up Sartre. That's that's the intellectual atmosphere in which he's writing is there all the French intelligentsia just recognize that there's no point in keeping uh, France French any longer. Exactly. And in fact, I go even further um, than that. I think it's a desire to have France beneath all the other nations, mm -hmm. right? A desire to be subjugated, have Western civilization beneath uh, all the other civilizations, uh, to declare its own inferiority to, and then therefore to will its own destruction and ensure that that takes place. Is this sort of done as like an apology just because like 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 out of a spirit of regret for colonization? Is that is that what's going on here? Well, I think that's certainly a big part of what Sartre is focused on. I mean, Sartre thinks this is the way to make the arc of history bend towards justice is that mm -hmm. Westerners need to be conquered. Western so so they're not liberal. So they're not liberals in the sense that they, they they're not liberals in the sense that they they want to, you know, equalize the playing field and 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 have like they, they actually do want, uh, you know, it's it's sort of this is how. Um, France and Western countries can make up for all the bad things is to actually go through it themselves. Exactly, go through it with themselves to the point whereby they no longer exist. Right. So this that's, makes them this makes them positive leftists, not just neutralist liberals. Exactly, exactly. And I think one of the one of the tragedies we've seen in our in our own times is how um, liberals have been uh, very susceptible to falling prey and being seduced by these kinds of arguments. And what they think is about equality. Uh, is in fact about about destruction, mm -hmm. uh, about uh, about embracing a culture of repudiation. To use the phrase that Roger Scruton um, used, that that liberals have been taught that the neutral position is a culture of repudiation. Mm -hmm. uh, a very strange uh, position, right? Because as you say, it's it's the repudiation of of um, of one's own, but also the repudiation of equality. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, and and. There, there's been a um, there, there's been a propensity to assume that that's the the liberal uh, the liberal stance, and the novel has a bit of that too, where you see how many you know, philanthropists, people of uh, of um, uh, let's call them liberals of goodwill, right? How they get swept up in this movement and uh, and egg it along, uh, and that's certainly uh, part of the part of the satire, I'd say, is is taking the, those kinds of intellectuals. Uh, those kinds of people and subjecting them to, subjecting them to the kind of uh, of black humor, the kind of satire that that a novelist can do well. Right. Let, let me just give you a quote from your from your article. So you know you say that in Camp of the Saints, um, Respell concentrates on the nihilism of Sartre's self-loathing worldview brings. Uh, where did that self-loathing, actually, when did that self-loathing come about? Because this wasn't a feature of like, you know, uh, even Franklin Roosevelt and, and some of the progressive administrative, uh, you know, statesmen of the early 20th century. So when when did this self-loathing come into being? It's a great question. And, and this is, I think, one of the interesting uh, kind of, if you will, intertextual debates that happens in some of this dystopic literature. So let's think of another novel that's more recent, which is similar in some respects, a different aspect, the spiritual component isn't quite there in the same way, but Michel Houellebecq's uh, submission, right? Uh, he actually has passages in the novel where he's discussing where it all went wrong. Mm 
um, and he draws attention to the First World War, that clearly something was wrong in the civilization to bring, uh, to bring oneself into that situation. I think Raspai has some agreement with that. Um, he'd probably be, um, he'd probably talk about the experience of the revolution uh, as well. We don't really get signs in the novel that, that that's the issue. Um, the genealogical questions aren't really there. It's kind of just assumed at the start that, that this is the situation we've ended up in. I mean, certainly, as I mentioned in the article, the 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 changing attitude within the Catholic Church plays a part of it. Mm -hmm. But again, that's that's a downstream of this this mysterious kind of um, this this mysterious origin moment that that is kind of obscured. And that's probably for uh, for this just the sake of the novel. That's probably the point of it because the novel, uh, you know, as I say, it's not a it's not a disaster novel. It's not kind of just dreaming up this uh, nightmarish scenario and seeing how it plays out um, for the sake of describing all the details of the scenario, you know, down to the last, uh, uh, last uh, ghoulish detail. The novel uh, belongs to the genre of apocalypse in the sense of unveiling. You could think of it as a kind of um, uh, exploration of this one line in, in Revelations uh, chapter 20. Uh, which will read out for us. And when mm -hmm. the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will go forth and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and will gather them together for the battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up over the breadth of the earth and encompassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Mm -hmm. So it, as an exploration of that, it's just happening. The end of the civilization is here. And we see the signs that that uh, that everything has been prepared for this, um, but the end is happening right now, and that's what the novel is is portraying. The this the end, while hiding the 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 historical origin story that interests uh, Wilbeck or at least his characters in submission. That part is not addressed uh, for the sake of a the theological mm -hmm. aspect, right? If you look at the history of of Christendom, you know from like the ninth century on, over a thousand years, you know you see the church. Um, playing a fundamental role in preserving and upholding um, the institutions of the West. Like just, you know, there's this building up. Obviously, it had to build from somewhere, it built from the collapse of Rome, but it built from somewhere. And at the height of its, um, you know, it's, you know, the height, the zenith of its, uh, you know, authority on earth, you kind of see the church as playing this fundamental role. But you talk about the fact in this book that the church by now has, or by, you know, in, in this scenario of the book has basically capitulated um, to the, the zeitgeist, um, you know, in, in Chronicles magazine, Paul Gottfried's one of his main theses is that it is the secularization of liberal Protestantism in the 20th century that really helped move the American situation on the same trajectory. So talk about the fact that just, you know, Christendom is no longer willing uh, to defend himself. The church is um, echoing the same themes as the Western European intelligentsia. The church is no longer seen as a defender, but rally, but rather a facilitator of this phenomenon. Yeah, it's a really it's a really great question, uh, and I think it describes uh, quite accurately broader trends that have taken place since the latter half of the twentieth century um, in the in the Catholic Church. I think uh, very few people have have written about it and directly because it involves a lot of uh, paradoxes. In in one sense, uh, Vatican II and the development leading up to it was supposed to give us a more encultured Christianity, a, a Christianity that was more respectful of local particularities, of cultural particularities, national particularities. And instead, what did we get? Well, national particularities, cultural particularities meant an overpowered uh, 
conference of national bishops that stripped a lot of the traditional powers that a, that a parish priest had or that a local bishop had over his flock. Uh, and uh, you got instead this kind of um, deracinated universalism, mm -hmm. uh, whereby the preferential option for the poor, uh, was, instead of that, you had a substitution of that with the preferential option for the migrant. Um, now, there's, there's a reason why we might want to think about mi uh, migrant as perhaps um, belonging to a category of poor, but we need to get the proper relationship right. Because if we don't, then we end up distorting the significance of, of the migrant and uh, endowing upon them this kind of uh, salvific uh, messianic character. And that's what the, that's what the novel is showing. Uh, and I think we see that quite a bit in, in, our, own, um, in our own time in the way that, uh, that religious institutions and, and, uh, and uh, many um, Catholic leaders have come to think about, uh, think about migration. They end up turning their, their themselves away from their own local communities and and uh, responding to the challenges to deconstruct those communities, whether it be the family, whether it be the, the church, whether it be the nation, the patria, you know, the three necessary societies um, um, that Pope Leo spoke about. Uh, you turn away from that and you end up fixating on, uh, on, on migration and uh, endowing that with a special, and, and those people, those migrants, with a special capacity to save the church mm -hmm. save the the save the um, civilization heal it from its sins right all these um all these categories begin to take on an, an elevated uh, uh status and we have to identify i think what's going on is they, they've been endowed with a messianic potential and that's just the burden a migrant can't bear <laughs> Uh, there are obviously people who uh, there are there's aspirational migrants right and there, there are refugees people who are genuinely in need of help but we can't give them a messianic character. That 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 uh, endowing them with that uh, is a, is an invitation to, at least above all else, a, a very dangerous eschatology, right? Um, and not to say nothing of our of our uh, soteriology, right? That's involved with that. So we have to be extremely careful about making those kinds of steps. And that, unfortunately, is what happened. What's happened, and that's why we, I think, have lost sense of the capacity to actually address immigration questions with respect to a genuine understanding of the common good. We've lost the ability to articulate the common good and instead we just focus on on uh, on on migration. Mm -hmm. Before before the Armada gets to France, um, you know, you talk about the fact that it it appears on the shores of Egypt and then South Africa. Uh, I think it was in that order. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, that South Africa, you know, they 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 both of them recognized the community interest. What was going to happen if they allowed, if they opened the gates and the cultural upheaval that would take place? And so they made a, a political decision. It was a political decision um, not to pursue some sort of like, you know, universal principle, but rather to immediately the first instinct is to protect your own people. Yeah. Right. Uh, so talk about the fact about of like Western countries uh, unable to make those. I mean, you kind of referenced it just now, but they're unable to make those distinctions. They're so committed to these universals that they forget about the fact that real people that they have been um, tasked by God with defending and preserving. They're no longer willing to do that because instead they have to pursue these universal principles that that, that really are going to be used to undermine their own culture. Yeah, and that's exactly. It. I think we one thing that we should bear note of in the novel too. I mean, obviously, it's it's as we say uh, fiction, but there's kind of the dramatic buildup is that this this group that initially sets out 
is not um, is not as benign as it appears to be. Um, so you have you have uh, well, they're being led by a demon is one is one aspect. Remember the Revelations quote that I read out earlier, right? There is actually a demonic figure leading them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the you see as the journey goes along, you see that the migrants are doing things that indicate that it's they're not a they're not they're not benign refugees. Uh, there there's actually something more sinister going on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what uh, what is uh, with this kind of dramatic outplay, you get this kind of elevation of their more sinister character on the one hand, and then uh, the elevation of the of the Westerners' incapacity to. Uh, acknowledge this to see what they see. There's evidence for it. They're murdering people along the way, right? They're refusing the the humanitarian aid, um, uh, murdering people who are trying to help them, right? These sorts of things. But you have the incapacity of Westerners to see this, to acknowledge this fact, and then you have uh, what, what you say: this inability to recognize the proper sense of self-defense, uh, you know, the importance of that, uh, the proper sense of of self-love, right, and what that might entail. Um, you don't have uh, you don't have efforts to think about these uh, these questions in a serious manner and and engage with the the complexities, which what policymakers have to do when they think about you know questions of immigration and such, um, uh, develop robust policy tools. And the novel has a good way of just showing that no one is interested in doing that. How well they say the the people who observe this fleet, the kind of um, uh, the, the the let's call them the the brass the military brass they say oh we don't need to think about those problems at all because the fleet is clearly uh, set up in in very poor boats and they're all just going to sink mm -hmm. so we don't have to think about hard questions because uh, the the fleet's just going to sink and right. of course it doesn't right which right. is again the aspect of the theological kind of almost divine protection they're that looking the yeah Navy gets they're looking for a way out you know they're not willing exactly. to make political decisions. Let me read this yeah. paragraph um, and then have you comment it, uh, on it. In discussing what to do about the Armada, the French authorities persuade themselves of their own illegitimacy. At the climax of the novel, the French president delivers an emergency speech meant to authorize the use of military force. I mean, basically by this time it's too late. So he delivers an emergency speech against the migrants and prevent them from landing, but he cannot bring himself to deliver the order. France will not defend itself when the migrants alight from their boats and wade ashore, the West has already capitulated. Yeah, and this is, I think, just going back to what we said earlier about the consequences of Southra's way of thinking. Um, it's not about uh, about trying to balance things out from, say, the from the crime, say, of empire, and trying to have a respectful uh, decolonization that recognizes, in this case, we simply cannot and should not exercise authority over these far distant countries that Westerners need to withdraw from that. And so we're trying to balance and level out the level out the the power imbalance, right, to make it make it put people on a more equal footing. It's not that it's to persuade oneself of one's own illegitimacy is to persuade oneself in, in the fullest sense is to persuade oneself that one no longer has a right to exist, mm -hmm. that one deserves to to die. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on there. And that's what the, it's a great moment, I think, in the in the novel, just as a literary device, because the president has his prepared speech, uh, which he's thought through with his advisors and such, and they think this is the best uh, the best uh, path to take. And uh, he falls; he can't utter the words. He lacks the courage to utter the words, mm -hmm. and then he falls back to his habits, his patterns of thinking, all those things we were saying earlier. These these um, these sources of of a civilization that's already effectively uh, dead. 
they come to the fore. And what does he focus on? He can't utter the words. He can't say anything. And he just says, well, everyone can decide what to do. And what's that? That's, that's, a, that's not a recipe for any community, right? You can't have law based mm -hmm. on that proposition. It's a re recipe for, uh, for radical individualism, for atomistic individualism, for Hobbesian, uh, um, the, the Hobbesian war of all against man all, of, of man being a wolf to man, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the other aspect of the, of the Hobbesian paradigm. It's, and that's not a community. That's, not, that's certainly not a political community in any mm -hmm. sense. And that's what we see being, that's what we see happening in that speech. Right. You describe a moral climate of what you call um, do-gooderism, right? This humanitarianism. Um, and then you, you use this phrase that there is a certain piety required to love one's community. One of the interesting things about what's happening is the religious rhetoric that um you know wraps itself around these universalist principles so like you know when you look at classical christendom you you know they they use the christian rhetoric they use charity and love and piety to describe our own um you know moral commitments to our own community and our own people and yet you're they're using these very religious categories and and rhetoric to justify their own uh, betrayal of christendom so talk about the religious aspect of this betrayal well, I, I, I think this is one of the fascinating parts of the novel is that the religious forces are still uh, influential in society. This isn't a novel of secularization in the sense when no, most people think about secularization, they're thinking about the withdrawal of religion from public life. Mm -hmm. It's not what we see here. What we see is religion is still present in public life, but it is the religion of humanity, right? Uh, which is effectively, it's a, it's a Christian heresy. It's a transformation of concepts uh, theological concepts like charity and uh, redefining their content. It's a transformation of piety, right, which is a virtue Thomas Aquinas talks about it, right? Uh, the, um, and um, and these kinds of, uh, of virtues are being transformed in what they should mean, uh, what they should entail. And that's, I think, the one of the, the in fascinating parts of this novel, I think, is that Raspai seems to understand in a way that uh, I mentioned Welbeck earlier, so let's just think about him. He seems to understand in a way that Welbeck doesn't, that it, the issue for the West isn't the, that um, we have people who no longer believe, right? we just have walked out, uh, religion has walked out of, of society. Um, but we have this spiritual anxiety that is still there, that people are still thinking and defining themselves in religious terms. We still have religious actors, bishops and such, uh, who walk around and play a public role. But what informs them? It's not the uh, classical Christianity. It's not the Christianity of old. It's a new, changed, uh, if you will, heretical Christianity uh, that is at play. So you have here the, the a sense that the real contest isn't between unbelief and belief. And, and in, in Welbeck's uh, submission, indeed in his novels, that battle's already been won. Belief is gone. It's the world of unbelief. Mm -hmm. In the Raspai, you have a sense that belief is still at play and belief is still uh, is still defining us. But because the content of that belief has changed, we're passing through a kind of world historical moment that is leading our civilization off the precipice. It's like the religious aspects have just become distorted and people don't recognize that they're being used for ends which contradict their original intention. You know, it's Precisely. people people I mean, they use the same rhetoric that have been part of our 
heritage for over a thousand years and they don't realize that there's been a revolution within the word like as, as aristotle would talk about like the you know the for, the word is still there it's just been filled with new content and so then when when people try to justify their actions they can't distinguish between the old use of the word and the new use of the word and the fact that the new use of the word is 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 being made to undermine um you know the very thing that they think they're holding on to and it's it's, it's really quite sad i, I want to shift a little bit um to like the um you know the prospects of of liberalism because when the president has to make this speech he is supposed to represent the good of france like the the good of france is embodied in his authority that's kind of like the the role of a magistrate or a king or a, or a political yeah. leader uh but he can't bring himself to do it and so what does he do he tries to um he tries to shift the the function that he plays back onto the people by um saying that it, that he's going to leave it up to each person's conscience to determine how to act that's a quote from your so and it, he's he's basically just um you know what's the word when you when you delegate he's delegating his own authority to the people and he's transitioning the situation so that um like as you say dissolving the nation into atomized individuals that's kind of a cop out like that liberal rhetoric is 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 actually facilitating the leftist revolution can you can you talk a little bit about that yeah, and just as you're saying this, uh, I think I think it's exactly right, and it's a good way of putting it. Uh, and uh, I go even further. I think what is actually happening here, this is this is another, so Raspaia, Raspaia is very interesting, kind of literary royalism, like showing accounts of of uh, revival of of royalty and such. Um, uh, but let me keep to the main point here. When you uh, when you have a leader who cannot make a decision and pushes it off onto others. Mm -hmm. This is in in the modern in the modern context. In, in, uh, think of the of the text um, that Max Weber writes, uh, the 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 vocation lecture on politics, politics as a vocation. This is an abrogation of the ethics of responsibility. This is precisely what the leader is supposed to do. And when you don't have that, you end up with depersonalized rule. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is what the royalists argued all along is what would happen with the abolition of the monarchy, that you'd have the triumph not of the capacity of, of a responsible ruler, one who can exercise personal power and uh, and has a sense of their their own uh, his own burdens, his own limitations, his own um, his own uh, capabilities, uh, his own goals. All that is vanished, it vanishes and, and passes away. And uh, and you have instead the replacement of, of a, a kind of amorphous rule, you know, best practices, technocratic best practices, where it's unclear who actually is in charge, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you can, and, and that's what royalists argued all along was what would happen uh, with the with the abolition of the monarchy and the move away from from personal rule. So that's I think a, a very interesting uh, aspect of the episode is that it's the the president of the republic, right? Not uh, someone who's trying to replace the figure of the monarch, right? Particularly right. in the in the context of the Fifth Republic, right? This is the the joke that is made about the Fifth Republic is that it's a monarchy in all but name because the president has so much power. It is like a replacement of the monarchy, a Republican monarchy. But what happens when you don't have uh, someone endowed with a kind of heroic stature or uh, what uh, to take it back to Weber again? Uh, kind of charismatic personality. What happens when you don't have someone like uh, General de Gaulle, right? leading the way what happens when you have a mediocrity well you have someone who surrenders responsibility who allows depersonalized power to govern and what is that well it's no government at all 
talk a little bit about a bit about the the consequences of of leaving individuals to their own devices because like we have a revolutionary left um that really does think and emphasize on terms of political classes and political groups and yet um there is no right that's willing to think in the same terms in order to confront that threat instead we get a bunch of people saying well it's up to individuals they can decide on their own whether you know immigration is is good or what like they, there's just this complete dissolving back into the individual you know the rhetoric of individualism and rhetoric of of individual rights and all those things but what happens to a people that are left to their own individual de devices that don't see themselves as part of an overall transcendent community that can confront these you know the, the political group uh, dynamics of of the left revolution well, a big part of it is anarcho-tyranny, right? The the kind of uh, of concept that is thought about by that thinker who we must not name, otherwise the media matters intern, right? Who has to listen to this will get upset. <laughs> but uh, but the I think a, a big part of it is just the absence of authority. A, a law and political community requires authority, and uh, it requires uh, so, uh, law requires a lawgiver, uh, uh, and. And when you lose sight of that of that capacity and those relationships, uh, uh, sorry, the capacity to identify those kinds of uh, relationships, you uh, remove the the capability to articulate um, and uh, determine a common good. Mm -hmm. And so that's what that's what happens when a, a society falls apart is you don't have the means to arrange uh, and enforce uh, the law. And and you don't you cannot have a common good without law, right? We have this. It was just a good example for us to bear in mind for the more theologically minded of the of the uh, 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 you know of our of our listeners, right? Is that it's an interesting debate whether in a prelapsarian state we require law. Uh, you know, surely if if. Um, in the you know in the, the prelapsarian oh, yep. real quick prelapsarianism refers to the state of man before um you know Adam sinned and and, and sin yeah. came into the world so go ahead sorry yeah exactly exactly so in this in this state of uh you might think that uh well we don't need law because no one's breaking the rules uh, um, and uh the the we only need rules when people break the rules and you'll need someone to enforce it when the when there are people breaking the rules so why would you need law in a prelapsarian state Mm -hmm. Well, the argument that that uh, more traditional theology has said, you know, including Thomas Aquinas, is that you still have, will have a need for a common good. You'll still have uh, you'll still have problems that require the determination of the law in the prelapsarian state. You'll still require an authority to provide those kinds of of uh, determinations, uh, and uh, we shouldn't lose sight of that fact. Right? That that law is not just about uh, about trying to cajole and coerce people who might be inclined to do bad things back into order, although that's certainly a function of it. Uh, law has this uh, relationship that's intrinsic to any community that has that's trying to think about um, and articulate uh, and determine a common good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the purpose of the law, you know, in, in that sense, you know, preceded the ideas of like, um, you know, the the idea that without without law, that men is going to go rob his neighbor or murder somebody. All of those elements of law um, were kind of added onto the situation 
you know, after the fall, but, you know, you still have to order society heavenward. That's kind of like the traditional view of, of these things. I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about immigration itself. We we probably have 10, 15 minutes left. Um, you know, we, we can talk about transcending the immigration debate in this book um, because it's really used as an analogy. But at the end of the day, immigration still is relevant to this to this conversation. Um I, I want to read a quote here. This this quote has always stuck with me, and I want you to uh, you know comment on it. But you know he's just talking about the fact that when you have vast swarms of foreigners that didn't grow up in a cultural context and with a cultural heritage that um, are so they're so built into our our the way our sentiments and the way that we see the world that we often don't even notice them. But you could have you could have like cherished national. Um, you know, artwork, architecture, just things from the past that mean a lot to you. And you don't even recognize how much they mean to you and how much they build up your identity. So I just want to read this quote. Um, your universe will have no meaning to them. That's, that's these immigrants. And and we can think of, you know, immigration all over the world right now. Our universe really just doesn't have any significance to them. So he writes that your universe has no meaning to them. They will not even try to understand. They're not interested in understanding they will be tired and they will be cold and they will make a fire with your beautiful oak door. Um, so just talk about the fact that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the immigration debate can get stuck in this legal versus illegal immigration and all of these things. But really, what is the importance of having an emphasis on, uh, you know, cultural um assimilation, but also just the inability of certain peoples, um, just because of how they were raised and the backdrop that, that defines them, they have a complete inability to cherish and love and preserve a culture that basically is our foundation. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great, um, it's, it's a great issue. I think it's one of the problems of our times because we do not understand human life to be an encultured human life. That uh, we, we talk a lot about multiculturalism and such, but no one really believes it. When they're talking about multiculturalism, what they're imagining is in fact uh, mass culture homogenization, everyone becoming one part of a culture, which isn't really a culture, it's an anti-culture. Uh, mm -hmm. And if we take, if we take um, culture seriously, then we're going to have to recognize the, the variety of cultures that exists around the world uh, and that and that are a permanent feature of human existence. Uh, and uh, a proper, I think, uh, you know, if we understood multiculturalism in a proper sense, um, I think we wouldn't use that word. It's just too corrupted nowadays. But let's talk about, uh, let's perhaps talk about a kind of plurality of cultures. In a proper sense, we would have, uh, we would acknowledge the permanency of them. We would have respect, admiration for the accomplishments of one and a capacity to, uh, to uh, evaluate um, different cultures. So one culture might be very good on, in one aspect that leads to human flourishing. Another culture might uh, also be good in an aspect. There might be variety, different paths and all that to achieve it. But notice what is presupposed in this discussion, I think, is the aspect of, of, uh, of permanency. And if we take that seriously, then we, shouldn't, we, we would never uh, think that we can suddenly uh, uh, mix, um, mix cultures on a very rapid, uh, time scale that we can suddenly throw two groups together and put them under the same political authority and say now you're going to uh, live with this new set of rules. You know, we, we would we would understand and be attentive to uh, to the difficulties of of translation, the difficulties of of bringing it together. And this is what um, this is what's been lost sight of. How is it that assimilation uh, has become a bad word? Uh, 
Well, it's I think in large part because of 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 this, the sense that we don't recognize the permanency of the of the cultured aspect of human existence. People need to be taught. They need to learn. And it doesn't just apply to foreigners. It applies to our own people too, right? Mm -hmm. When we have a terrible education system, then the U.S. is leads to functional literacy of almost a third of the population, right? What is going wrong uh, with our capacity to understand our own culture and our, and transmit it? Uh, so I think we have to, uh, the, the danger that we have, I think, in immigration debates is we immediately run to the economic argument uh, mm -hmm. for or against immigration. And that's the paradigm that that dominates, uh, is bringing in the workers, uh, more workers. Is it is it necessary for us to boost the economy yeah, from you know, 3% to 4% or whatever, uh, satisfy the shortage of labor? Oh, no, is that going to, is that going to depress wages? Let's have the debate. When we focus on those criteria, we are already imagining human existence and the human being as one that is uh, motivated and uh, defined solely by material aspects. When we take the cultural aspect, though, in mind and, and bear in that fuller picture of human existence, I think we become more attentive to these, uh, these, the, the, the challenges that could, be, that could arise if we, if we suddenly decide to bring a whole bunch of people in once or change national borders around randomly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a problem in other parts of the world. Uh, all these things come to the fore, um, and that's what we've lost sight of. Mm -hmm. I, I like the phrase historical consciousness. Um, you know, people recognizing that the world around them, um, just with the, within the horizons of their own lifetime, um, there's so much more to culture than that specifically. You know, I think people get caught up into like, you know, the 90s were a great decade. We were prosperous. We had lots of material things. And now the, we have inflation and we can no longer afford our food. You know, but but if you look, if you if you can if you can get yourself up into a higher plane and look back down on your community, you recognize that there are very long term difficulties at play here. And this is one of the points that you make that, you know, our our, our present troubles are not just in the last 10 to 20 years, but these are very deep seated and they probably originated before anyone listening to this was born. So talk about the fact that this has been sort of a long time coming and the difficulty of restoration in light of the fact that um, we almost have forgotten what the West was and that may not be recoverable. I mean, civilizations do decline. You know, there are societies that are no longer around and we need to recognize the tragic sense of history. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And I think one of the problems in the Anglo-American world is that we've closed ourselves off from that tragic sense of history. Um, even, I mean, it's certainly a problem in, in, in the European continent too, but the, the, the thing you could at least say, this was a line that Raymond Daron, uh, the French uh, intellectual, one of the great intellectuals um, of the post-war scene, uh, he had about uh, the French president, uh, Giscard d'Estaing, who was... Uh, who was um, the, the the second president to follow de Gaulle and someone who wanted to take France in a different direction, a much more liberal direction. Uh, uh, but Aron said of him that uh, he still had a, a tragic sense of history. The difference was is that he thought history would no longer be tragic. Mm -hmm. And that, that attentiveness to that it once had a, a, a tragic sense, but now doesn't, is at least something. I don't think I can say that about uh, about uh, any any uh, Anglo-American leader. I think uh, since uh, since the 1980s, and even the leaders in the 1980s who I might be thinking of um, were considerably older, right? 
that they had a certain awareness that that uh, of the of tragedy. It's certainly not there in the nineties, right? Uh, that I think might be one of the big um, things that we should bear in mind to get out of, out of that paradigm of the nineties were so good because of all these material advances and such. We we lost sight in that decade of a tragic sense of history. Uh, we imagined it as always uh, progressing towards a good, happy outcome, a kind mm -hmm. of a, a comic, right? It's a, it's a, it is classically understood that that is the definition of comedy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that it always ends it with a with a good, good outcome. Uh, and the, I think that would be an interesting strand for us to follow to think about when did that tragic sense of of history, mm -hmm. um, that sense that good outcomes are not guaranteed, when did that erode from from the Anglo-American consciousness and from uh, Western consciousness. I'd put it probably, I think in the Anglo-American world, it would probably be close to the, we'd have to look seriously at the progressive movement. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people like Dewey, uh, and that's before the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's would be the, the sort of th uh, suggestions I would bear in mind. But maybe it goes back further. It's hard to say, though, but I, I want to focus on that. I want to understand that dynamic, I think. It is hard to say, and I think I think it's important. I think it's a very, um, you know, and I, I I love you know American history, and I love you know my own heritage and stuff. But there is a peculiarly American aspect to this cheap optimism. I think people have this sense, and, and part of it might be just the experience of World War II. I mean, like we were the only country in the world where it was just good to live here. You know, after World War II, Europe was devastated. You know, uh, but we we didn't really. I mean, we had our economic recessions, but those are always temporary. Those things can be recovered, um, for sure. But we just haven't had to face, you know, an actual like uh, civilizationally defining tragedy before. And we just have the sense that everything will be okay. Yeah, like Obama's insane and Biden's crazy, and we can all laugh at that. And like the transsexual movement is just silly and goofy. But you know, everything is going to work itself out. Um, I don't know if history supports that mentality, and I think that um, people need to be reading more about you know tragedies. They need to look at lost causes. What does it mean to be so devastated at the loss of your way of life and your heritage where there's, a, there's sort of a final moment and it is no more? And I think people need to recognize that that is worth contemplating. You can't solve it. You're just an individual, but it's worth reflecting on and passing on because I think people are beginning to get the sense that our children are not going to have what our grandparents had culturally. And there's something um, at a deeper level that's more um, moving and more motivating than having this sense of tragedy than just the cheap cartoon optimism i have this quote in my twitter feed and think if you want think um think what you want of, of spengler but i have this quote that optimism is cowardice and i think it's just a way of like um you know just kind of pushing it by the wayside everything is going to turn itself out you know we're america like even this trump like make america great again the best is yet to come it's all cheap and it's not dealing with the inner rot of things so i guess as we kind of bring this conversation to a close i, I don't know if you have any last words on on that before i ask my last question well, I think just two quick points uh, on that. Uh, one is that it goes to the, the I think it is a, 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 the truth of history that tragedy occurs. We can observe that empirically. And what teaches us to reject it is a particular theology, a distorted theology. So it goes back to uh, to that problem, I think, as being one worry that we have to reckon uh, with. And then the second thing too, I think is that's an excellent note just to, to take the conversation back to uh, Jean Raspail and his, 
his whole uh, his whole corpus, his other novels, is that his novels are very much about uh, being a guardian, a, a kind of literary guardian of ruins of old cultures and old civilizations around the world, and pointing at them um, uh, not because he believes that they can immediately be resuscitated and rebuilt, but pointing at them so we keep their memory alive. And uh, having a kind of poetic, if you will, poetic practice that looks at that and and guards and keeps and preserves those those ruins uh, is what I think inspires him as a novelist. And I think we can take heart uh, with that. And it's perhaps a genre that we wish would develop more in the English speaking world. Um, uh, but I think to handle that, we'd have to leave that uh, that progressivist theology that I was just alluding to behind. My last my last question is is about the book itself. Um... Both of us recommend reading it if you can find it. It's it's difficult to find and it's pricey, un unfortunately. Um, it can be found, um, but it's worth reading. It's worth getting. It's worth contemplating. So my question is, um, what things do you do? You, would you advise readers have in mind when they're going through this book? What, what approach should they take mentally? What what should they look for? Well, I think uh, genre pressures the telling of the story. Right, read it as an apocalyptic genre. Keep those theological themes. Uh, in the forefront. Uh, secondary genre you might want to keep in mind is a kind of the, the grotesque descriptions of human life and of human existence that appear in there. Um, those are, those are uh, provocative, they're excessive, but they have a point. So we should ask what the point of that is. And third thing I think to bear in mind is, is that uh, this is not a novel of, uh, and it shouldn't, and we should look for and understand the evidence in it to understand it, not as a novel that rates non-Westerners down low and Westerners up high. The Western characters in the novel come across as very bad. They come across as full of, uh, as, as uh, having serious vices. We should understand, examine those vices, because that's, I think, the, one of the key themes of the novel, look and understand why uh, Westerners are not so great, not as great as they might think that uh, uh, that they are one time or another. So look for those three things, yeah. the apocalypse, grotesque, and understanding the problems of the Western characters. You know, uh, yeah, and, and just to draw one more concluding point here, um, you know, a lot of his point is that, um, you know, Westerners need to look inward. You know, part of the decline of the West is is not characterized by um, pure invasion. It's also characterized by just an unwillingness to even um, become better human beings, become better representatives and preservers of of better men that that came before. You know, part of our part of our problem is the fact that um, we have declined individually and um, in terms of our community, in terms of our political spirit. Uh, all of those things are aspects of our decline. You know, we can't just blame foreigners. We can't just blame all these. Things. We have to take responsibility for our own suicide so to speak our own cultural suicide um yeah, so exactly yeah so comment on that and then we'll, and then we'll close it well i think that's that's the point is that this is not a novel whereby uh and it's a mistake to read the novel as one that just says let's blame uh let's blame foreign migration for all our problems uh that's not the story of the novel at all the novel repudiates that way of thinking uh and and uh shows the problems of it this is the novel of civilizational suicide and I think if there's if there's anything that is a kind of quiet exhortation in it, it's uh, take responsibility, uh, take take control of yourself and your recognize your own actions, your own capabilities. That's where one has to begin. 
Well, uh, Nathan, I thank you for your time. This is a controversial book, and I highly recommend it. I, I think it's. I think I, I wish. I wish it was more available. But I really appreciate you writing that essay. I'm going to link to it, and I and I hope that people, you know, pay more attention to your writings on these things in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.